You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, this is Abraham. And this is Shane. Welcome to Why We Do What We Do. Your favorite consumable psychology podcast. I think I got it this time. Yeah, I think you did. Nice job. <laughs> I think you nailed Thanks. it. All right, so Practice. let's... um. Man, I mean, I feel like we just got to jump right in, you know? Yeah, let's just do it. Okay, so essentially what we're going to talk about is that there is this criticism of what behaviorism, the field or maybe philosophical orientation to psychology, did to the study of certain things while they were, while that field was largely popular, let's say, in the middle of the uh, 20th century. So, yeah, the, essentially what we're going to be talking about this episode is what people have said about what behaviorism did and, and said about emotions and the, what's true and untrue about that. And also we're going to specifically quote the behaviorists here. So we're going to take this straight from the horse's mouth, as they say. You know, and I, I would get furious about this topic when people refute like or kind of like disparage behaviorists and stuff, but since emotions don't exist, I can't be mad. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Great. So this would be a nice, calm, emotionless episode. Yeah, yep. Yep. No, do not expect any enthusiasm here. So essentially one of the main things that we're gonna discuss is that, as we mentioned, the understanding from behaviorism was that behaviorism rejected thoughts and emotions as being relevant or worthy of study inside of human psychology. Incorrect. Right. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> they refer to thoughts and emotions as private events that are behaviors that we have that exist that everybody experiences. Everybody, as far as we know, there might be emotionless people out there. Yeah, I would imagine that there are probably some people that maybe have no emotions, but uh, pretty rare. Another argument here is that behaviorism teaches or creates children who are rigid and robotic so false <laughs> also no evidence of that and that behaviorists prefer not to talk or study about or think about emotions incorrect again i uh, <laughs> that's the that's the noise i should make there yeah the the, the, the thing is is that that emotions exist they're they're just complex and they can be pretty difficult to study but they do exist and we do recognize that they exist as behaviorists right and so uh, in our synesthesia episode, this also came up where it was interesting that some people were saying synesthesia was this thing that we knew about and the behaviorism crushed the research on synesthesia. And I remember we, when we discussed, we were thinking, wow, let's go through and find out what they did. Let's, let's look up and see and found no place in all of the published world where they ever s disparaged the idea of synesthesia at all that what we did find was that they said, this is what synesthesia is, and then they didn't talk about it. So behaviorists didn't study synesthesia very much, but they never said that it wasn't a thing or that it couldn't be studied or that it wasn't worthy of consideration in any way. Right, and, and so I think I think what ends up happening is, um, and this is just, I'm gonna do a real quick hot take on this just to kind of give my perspective. I, th I think that because behaviorism does offer a pretty parsimonious and, and succinct um explanation of the world around us, I think it's really easy for people to go, no, 
it's not that simple. And not that we're saying that humans are simple or that behavior is simple. Behavior can be really complex. Emotions are complex. Private events are complex. We talk about relational frame theory and all kinds of jargony stuff. We, we're not going to dig into that, but it offers a, a pretty clear explanation of the world. And I think that sometimes people have a hard time accepting that. And so it's really easy to just kind of like, just be like, no, it's not that simple. Right. Yeah, we... I think people often have a tendency to want to lean toward things that sound big and fantastical, um, but maybe lack a certain level of pragmatism or mm-hmm. parsimony. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've discussed parsimony on here. We don't need to dig into that. Yeah. But you might be wondering why bring this up at all. Well, okay. I listen to a lot of podcasts and I was listening to an interview that was on the podcast Science Friday, which is a great podcast and I love it very much. And they were interviewing a a man named Franz DeWall and he was promoting a book that he published recently and it it sounded really cool. It sounded like it sounded really interesting. It sounded like he had a lot of really fascinating things to say about emotions, especially with respect to animals. That would seem to be a huge part of what he was talking about was really animals and their complex emotions that they experience that a lot of times people think animals are really only capable of hunger, lust, and fear, basically. Right. It may be you know, some amount of compassion, but really very simple and basic. And he was arguing, as far as I remember, that there were a lot of complex emotions that animals felt that really informed or maybe illuminated some of the ways that humans behave as well. And I was thinking while I was listening to this, wow, this is really fascinating. I'm really interested to read this book. And then he said something that really caught my attention. He said that behaviorism killed research on emotion for almost the entire 20th century. And that specifically Skinner said that emotions were irrelevant and couldn't be studied. So those are, those are bold claims. Those are bold claims. And I and I was really curious about this. So then I had to know. I'm like, all right, now I feel like I want to discuss this. Let's let's really dig into some of the background and the the what's going on here and see what what was missed. What what ha- what could have happened in the last century that that got missed. And and how did behaviorists go so far as to create an entire movement to crush emotion out of research? Because I think that's a pretty impressive feat in itself. <laughs> that would that actually would be very impressive. So all right, so let's do a little bit of background on on what has sort of been said about emotion generally speaking. Okay. Yeah. So I think this is a really great quote about emotion because I think it really captures the complexity of what emotion is in general. Um, So Aristotle argued that the proper regulation of emotions was a defining feature of wisdom. And and essentially the the direct quote was, anyone can become angry. That is easy. And he wrote this in the Nicomachean, Nicomachean? I don't know. The Nicomachean Ethics. I apologize for being mush-mouthed on this, but you did great. The rest, that sounds great. <laughs> I appreciate that. It's, it looks, it sounds fine enough. So then the, the the rest of the quote goes, but to be angry with the right person and to the right degree and to, at the right time and for the right purpose and in the right way, that is not within everybody's everybody's power and is not easy. So I think I think what he's kind of saying here is like you've got emotion, which is a comp- it's easy to have, but it's it's difficult to direct it in a certain way or to control it in a certain way. It, it, it becomes a pretty complex part of the human existence. Agreed. And in 19, in, not 19, but 1884, so a whole century and some change ago, <laughs> there was a very, very well-known psychologist by the name of William James. I've actually wanted to do an entire episode just on William James because he's often described as 
or given the title of, I guess, the father of modern psychology. He, he really did contribute a lot to the field of psychology, especially conceptually speaking and how we talk about it, how we think about it, and was a, a huge mover and shaker in the 1800s. So he's got a lot of interesting things to talk about. Also, really, really gave birth to the movement of pragmatism inside of uh, psychology, which is really cool. Anyway, he wrote an essay entitled, What is an Emotion? And he he says this, he has this insight that not only does the brain communicate with the body, but equally important, the body communicates with the brain. And while this has been shown to be correct over and over again, even some research I heard as recently as this month, I think, uh, was demonstrating this again in 2019, I should say, we're recording this in two th- in the spring of 2019. So <laughs> this, the if people go back and listen to this, this is when this research came out. But anyway, what he often described in his explanation of emotion was not that the emotion caused the behavior, but, but the action caused the emotion. So he gives the example of seeing a bear and running away. And he says that we feel fear because we run away from the bear. We don't feel fear and then the fear causes us to run away from the bear. So it's very different. This was this was very controversial relative to how other people felt about this at the time. But he was trying to offer a different view of how to understand how these things would work and how they'd affect one another. Now, that's not to say that everybody believes that anymore or that that is the main way of thinking about that. Just that that was his contribution, understanding emotions in a way, if that if you will. Yeah, I mean that was that was pretty much his frame, right? Like so if you're discussing if you're trying to explain emotions to people, that was his kind of way to offer a little bit of clarity on understanding in a, in in layperson terms what emotions like how emotions applied to the human experience or like that personal experience. Well, what else did the behaviorists say that made it hard for people to buy their position on emotions? Oh, they said so many things. So the initial way that behaviorists actually treated emotions were they looked at anger as like a like a frequency of aggression, right? So so how often somebody was physically aggressive, maybe verbally aggressive, things like that. Uh, and it actually made it hard for the general public to accept that as explanation of emotions because it's not it's it's a pretty succinct way to describe what anger might look like. You know, like if I'm stomping around, if I'm slamming, if I'm slamming doors, if I'm hitting walls and stuff, that's a pretty that's a pretty clear indicator of what anger might look like. From a behavioral perspective, but that's not an end-all, be-all, and that doesn't really describe anger per se. It's this is very related to the idea of circular reasoning. We see someone who's stomping around and pushing things and yelling, and say, "Why are they doing that?" And then we want to say, "Oh, because they're angry." Well, really, the way that a behaviorist would approach this is to say, "I see them stomping and kicking and throwing things," and then ask, "Why are they doing those things?" Because something that happened that made them angry and now they're doing these things. And so we could certainly describe those behaviors as being angry, but the behaviors wouldn't say they're doing it because they're angry. They're doing it because they just got fired. And for some reason they're doing it because they're angry. Seems like a reasonable, a more reasonable explanation than they're doing it because they just got fired. So they would just do this thing regardless of circumstance. If they were angry and they just get angry for no reason whatsoever whereas the behaviorists are interested in well what was the th- what was the event what was the the, what was the context yeah what was the context in which this occurred exactly yeah and i think that's the thing that people really struggle with today that when behaviorists recognize things like anger what we look at is like we recognize anger as a private event but we look at the the context in which the behaviors occurring and we look at what the problem is so like anger is a fine emotion but aggression is a problem so we might look at it like that and look at treating those those contexts and things like that too while also accounting that hey maybe this person is frustrated what does that look like how can we help them be less frustrated yeah 
I think it also becomes more difficult with those more nebulous emotions like, let's say, love. Why does that person do these things that they do for their significant other that seem like they're counterproductive to the point of being almost harmful to themselves? Mm-hmm. And the layperson might look at this and say they're doing it because they're in love. And then behaviorists might look at this and say, okay, I see that they're like spending a lot of money with this person. They're spending a lot of time with this person that they are missing out on things that they, that they normally would be spending their time on. Um, and that they are allocating a lot of their, just their general resources and well being to, uh, to this other person and say like, okay, why are they doing this? Well, because this person asked for it because when they didn't get that, that there was an aversive consequence, like the person went away or they didn't have as much access to them. Yeah. We could describe all those things as love. And that is a, a really good descriptor of what those behaviors are, but that the cause of those behavior is to be found in what the context or the situation or the event was that had them do that thing. So for every specific action, there is a specific uh, cue or reason for that action. And there's a specific outcome of that action that was either to avoid something that you didn't like or to um, gain access to something you did like, or there could be the something built bad happens and you don't do that thing again. Yeah. And so just real quick to kind of touch on that idea of love, there is a really great article out there called um, Towards Understanding the Meaning of Affectionate Verbal Behavior and Towards Creating Romantic Loving by Dermer in 2006. Really cool like behavior analysis of like love and verbal behavior. So the behaviorists didn't kill emotion after all. Oh, wait, skipping mm. ahead. What else did the behavior, those crazy behaviorists say that would throw people off and make them think that they don't, uh, they don't care about people or emotions i guess oh okay so um a gentleman named watson right he's pretty influential in our field john b watson we did an episode about him with uh, the study he did with um little albert so if you're familiar with little albert same watson that guy same guy um so here's his quote and this and this gets quoted often in behave in in when people reference behavior and uh, behaviorism in general so uh the quote goes give me a dozen healthy infants well-formed in my own specified world to bring them up in. And I'll guarantee you to take anyone at random and train him to become any type of specialist I might select. Doctor, lawyer, artist, merchant, chief, and yes, even beggarman and thief. Regardless of his talents, pensions, tendencies, abilities, vocations, and even race of his ancestors. So people hear that quote a lot about behavior. Shane. Yes. You stopped too early. There's more to that quote. What's the rest of the quote? He also goes on to say... After the thing that you just said, so regardless of their talents, pensions, tendencies, etc., he says, I am going beyond my facts, and I admit it. But so have advocates of the contrary, and they have been doing it for many thousands of years, end quote. And so, yeah, he's basically saying, I am exaggerating in this quote. This, I, I'm not actually saying that I believe that this is the case, but the the people who have been arguing that everyone who is a beggar is just a a beggar because they're a bad person. And everyone who's just a doctor is just a doctor because they're naturally good at medicine. That's the the claim that they're making and they've been making it for a long time. And so you just say the reverse of that and you see how ridiculous it sounds when you say this is the only thing that it could possibly be. You're just a doctor because you're born to be a doctor or you're just a doctor because John B. Watson trained you to be a doctor and that it is a combination of those things. And so it's important to take the whole quote into context. Yeah. In fact, as we just mentioned with the little Albert, he was interested in emotions, specifically in how emotions were conditioned. And although 
behaviorism did emphasize what people were actually doing and emotions were considered sort of these physical responses. He, uh, Watson did believe that there were only three unlearned types of emotions at birth, but that they were nevertheless part of, um, of birth. Now, also important to point out that Watson more or less preceded the contemporary behaviorist movement that is accused of killing research on emotion. He did a lot of his work in the late 1800s, early 1900s sort of stuff. And behaviorism as it was described and the behaviorism that is supposedly responsible for killing research on emotions really started to take off in the late 1930s and 1940s. That's when you started to see a lot more research on behaviorism. That is more what you would think of as being behaviorism start to come out. Anyway, so Watson thought that the three emotional reactions that we're born with are fear, rage, and love. And those are just things that we're capable of doing without any additional learning. And that those three types of emotions can spread out to much more complex emotions as we get older. And he did show in his study that we described with little Albert that you could train to a certain extent this fear response by associating naturally fearful things with things that we don't naturally associate with fear. And he presumably wanted to continue to pursue that by demonstrating probably also love and probably also rage as well with um, different types of associations that you could make. Um, he didn't, but I assume that that's something he would have done had he been able to do so and not been fired from his job. <laughs> anyway, so he also, even though he he really mostly was interested in or spoke about um, reflexive conditioning, uh, similar to what Pavlov was doing. He was very um, inspired by Pavlov, you could say. And so that was primarily where his interest sort of lay um, with his study of, of behaviorism. Right. So then, so he preceded this, this movement that supposedly killed emotional research, right? or research on emotions. I should say emotional research is probably very different, right? Like people are really enthusiastic about research. Um, that's probably a very different thing. So so he preceded <laughs> this event, right? Or the, this this movement. And, uh, and the quote that you got from this gentleman was that Skinner said that emotions are irrelevant. Yes. Now, yeah. And so interestingly, uh, he said... He said that behaviorism had killed this research on emotions, that they weren't interested in it. They said that they were irrelevant, that, that emotions didn't matter. And then some – so this is a live radio show that's done, and there was a, a listener called into the show, and she said, hey, I'm a behaviorist. I just want to clarify that I don't think behaviorism ever said that emotions weren't important. What they may have said is that emotions are complex and difficult to study. And Franz, Dr. DeWall, responded saying, well, Skinner said – I want to make sure I quote him directly. He said, Skinner said emotions are irrelevant. That's exactly what he said. Okay. And that's a very direct and, 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 and incredibly bold statement. It's a very bold statement. And my initial thought was this, my, my reaction is, and we've already talked a bit, a lot about what behaviorism has said about emotions, but my, my immediate reaction was what, how do behaviorists do, do this? I'm like I need to go investigate. I am going to go find exactly what the behaviorist said and I'm going to I'm going to highlight and point out where behaviorists went about killing research on emotion. So, here's some of the things that I found. I'm going to go ahead and quote Skinner directly here. So, he said, quote, "It has often been pointed out that most of the vocabulary of emotion is metaphorical in nature." End quote. And in here he's talking about the fact that when we say something like, "I have a strong feeling," 
that strong doesn't necessarily mean strong as in my feeling could lift 100 pounds if it tried to, but my feeling is that it is an intense one, right? And so right. we give these metaphorical descriptions of the type. There's the, we have butterflies in my stomach. I don't literally have butterflies in my stomach. I'm feeling anxious, right? Right, or, right. Or even things like, I'm frozen with fear. I'm like, I'm not actually frozen. My body temperature is not like below 30 degrees, 32 degrees Fahrenheit. It's just that I am, I feel paralyzed or I feel unable to move because I'm so afraid. So he just is saying here that emotion, the vocabulary that we use is metaphorical in nature. Okay. So uh, that came from his book called Verbal Behavior, published in 1957. Um, In the same book, he said, Quote, the conditions which cause an organism to be emotional have never been exhaustively studied or even satisfactorily classified, end quote. And so here you can clearly see essentially what he's saying is that at least at the time that this was published, we didn't really know what all emotions there were or how to define them. And they hadn't really been thoroughly studied at that point. So, so far he hasn't, this is 1957, he hasn't said that emotions are irrelevant or that they don't exist. You want to take the next quote? Yeah. So another quote would be the listener reacts to the verbal stimulus with conditioned reflexes, usually of the emotional sort. So he's even acknowledging that there are emotional reactions, emotional responses within the organism. The listener, the person that's actually receiving the stimulus, the person that's attending to the stimulus in the environment is having emotional reactions. They are responding emotionally. Yeah. So not only has he not said that they're irrelevant, he has specifically talked about the fact that they are clearly there and part of the part of the context uh he gives another one quote the common idioms that are things such as in love in fear and in anger suggest a definition of emotion as a conceptual state in which a special response is a function of circumstances in the history of the individual end quote and so uh, here he seems he is specifically saying that we call things like love fear and anger exactly the same ones that Head Watson had talked about as well. Um, but I think he's just listening to examples here. And he is saying that we feel these things because we essentially understand the context in which something relevant is happening. And that the explanation then for the reason that we feel those things is because of our our conceptual understanding of the circumstance in which we feel that emotion. So we feel love because we recognize that that person that is there with us, that we love, that we feel love toward or animal, you know, whoever, whatever it is, that that is an important part of our life. And if we didn't recognize that, we wouldn't feel love. Like that's exactly what he's saying. Yeah. Yeah. And I think so, so kind of just to go into, so he's not saying that love, that, that emotions are irrelevant. He's actually talking about how important they are in understanding the experience of the organism. Yeah, exactly. Some other things that weird have been said about, uh, Skinner. Um, it was said that he also believed that cognition and emotions are the byproducts of behavior or responses to things that had happened in the environment. That's a direct quote. Another quote is he viewed the building of emotional competence as the ability of a diverse learner to express his or her feelings based on antecedents and consequences. And so all of this is describing the fact that Skinner talked about emotions as things that we do 
and that we do them in the context of our experiences and understanding. When we have developed a history with a certain thing, we either learn to be fearful or love it or feel much more complex emotions than that. Those are just very simple, basic ex- uh, examples of things that we could feel. Right. And I think I think kind of to to really dig into this and we're going to talk about some of the other um, like some some other research and stuff like that. What's important to recognize is that the behaviorist perspective is not that emotions are irrelevant. It's that they don't generally provide a satisfactory explanation for behavior. They usually ju- they usually discuss a state and they are things that happen, right? But right. they don't really give us they don't get they don't they're not they don't explain anything. Yeah, I think maybe that maybe what is the confusion here is exactly what you said that the behaviorist isn't satisfied with labeling something as being emotional as the cause of their behavior. That being said, the emotion is perfectly interesting in its own right. It is something that we do, it is something that we feel, and it is something that we can understand by examining the context of that feeling. But understanding why we feel that feeling is usually where the behaviorist seems to want to go, of not just, okay, you feel love, I'm done, my work is done, but I wonder why you feel love. Let's look into that some more. And then it feels, it might seem like the behaviorist is uncaring and uninterested in love when really they're interested more in love by examining the conditions under which that emotion exists in the first place, how it is learned or developed, how it is shaped or altered, how it extinguishes over time or with some adverse event that might change the way that it works. So when I started studying behavior um i started studying back in like 2010 like i really started digging into this like the whole idea of behaviorism one of the articles i found that was really interesting was um from fryman hayes and wilson in 98 and it was it was all about why behavior analysts should be studying anxiety because anxiety is a is a very real thing i suffer from anxiety I have, I am formally diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. Uh, and so it is a really tough thing to struggle with. And I, what does it mean? Like when we talk about like what that looks like, you know, I, I struggle with, with different things, but, um, <clears throat> it's a really cool article that talks about studying psychology in, in some kind of behavioral way. So we're not only talking about studying emotions, but really taking the time to like objectively dig into what it looks like and what it means. Like, what does it actually encompass when we talk about studying anxiety? Well, at the time this was written, it was a pretty common subject in mainstream psychology. And it didn't spend a lot of time in behavior analysis. You didn't see a lot of people in the behaviorism realm studying anxiety specifically. And and they actually, in this article, they talk about why we should study it. And, and the first thing is that uh, humans have this really great capacity to relate events, right? We can take, we can actually relate multiple events together. Like when you see a spider or I say the word spider, what do you think of? An eight-legged little thing. Right. But you probably also think of other contexts, right? Like maybe a time that you saw a spider or like maybe in an environment in which you Maybe like I think of when I think of spiders, I might immediately think of the woods, right? Because I typically okay. see them outside, right? So you you relate these 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 particular events. Well, we do that with neutral stimuli too. Like we do this with all these things with, without really any direct training. So we have this really cool experience and this ability to, to relate all these things that aren't generally related. And and so if we start studying this, we can understand how these relationships start to develop and 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 are fostered within that organism's experience. So that's one. That's one reason. <laughs> well, and, and speaking of anxiety, so there's another quote uh, Skinner had about anxiety. He said specifically that um, 
quote, an individual's behavior does not change because he feels anxious. It changes because of the aversive contingencies which generate the condition felt as anxiety. The change in feeling and the change in behavior have a common cause, end quote. Hmm. And this is going back to, again, that it's not that somebody does something because they're anxious. They are put in a situation in which it causes them to feel anxiety. And and while that, that happens, they are also then experiencing other things. And he also did describe the fact that it's really difficult to... He didn't say really difficult. He said that there is something that is difficult about studying emotion specifically because we don't change the emotion if we want to study it. We change the circumstance and see if then the behavior that is associated with that emotion changes. So we can try and... If we were interested, for example, in studying hunger, if we were thinking about hunger as an emotion, well, I can't change your hunger. But what I can do is I can either deprive you of food or give you food and see how that affects your behavior. Right. And so and we do the same thing with all other emotional research is we can't actually directly change someone's emotions, but we can change the circumstances for them and then see how the emotions change or the behavior associated with those emotions change. And that there is also some difficulty in this in that. We kind of have to arbitrarily decide that whatever behavior we're seeing does, in fact, represent the motion that we think that it represents. We have to sort of just label, well, we're going to call those behaviors right there happiness or sadness or jealousy or whatever it's going to be. And so we can't then get agreement on what it is. So we can't actually verify that the emotion we think we're studying is, in fact, the emotion we're studying because we can't confirm it against anything because we can't change it and we can't directly measure it that's not to say that it's irrelevant that's not to say that it's not there it's just to say that it is a part of a context in which we only have a small access to it and so in this new book that eric was talking about it sounded like he had this really cool new system for looking at ways to classify and measure behavior measure emotions as behavior which sounds super interesting and i think you know more power to you it's I think you could very well say, and I'm not necessarily making this accusation, but you might be able to say that maybe the problem with uh, Skinner's analysis of emotion was that he lacked imagination in how to study it. You know? Yeah. And honestly, apparently so did everyone else. Yeah. And <laughs> and, and, and maybe kind of still do. I yeah. don't know. We're, we're getting there. We're, we're getting there. We're but working it's, on it. It's I mean, you know, yeah. the, the Fryman article that I just mentioned, the Fryman and Hayes article from 1998 was is just kind of a cursory like it's just we're just starting to dig into this like really, really dig into this. I mean, when you talk about Skinner's work, the analysis of verbal behavior is a great that that book or verbal behavior, I should say, the, ver- the verbal behavior book is a fantastic book, but it's an incomplete work. It's recognized as an incomplete work because the verbal behavior community has grown and developed since then. You know, so so even but even in that book, he's he's talking about how emotions play a factor in that organisms, that the constellation of that organisms experience and learning history. So in how they they do exist and how they are represented and how they can be, um, you know, included into into that that particular context for that organism. Yeah. So I guess all of this really is to say that. To directly answer the question, did behaviorism kill research on emotions? No. And no. the, the absolutely not. Not even close. And it's just it's surprising to me that he would go on this radio show like this and just say that. And I'm and again, I'm just thinking like, wow, I need I need to find this specifically and I want to talk about this. And and when you dig into even the tiniest cursory amount of research on this 
No one in behaviorism has ever said that emotions are irrelevant. Many of them have been very interested in studying emotions, but a lot of them are specifically interested in what causes the emotions in the first place rather than studying the emotions themselves. And maybe that's where the confusion is. Many of them are, are have talked about the fact that it's really hard to get any kind of specific agreement or definition on emotions. And because it's arbitrary, it's maybe more useful to look at what happens as an outcome of those rather than try and just say like something is an emotion by itself and, and then describe it in the context in which it occurs. And maybe that's hard for people to hear. But I mean, at no point did anyone say that mo- emotions were irrelevant. Many of them have argued, in fact, that that we sh- that are th- of the behaviorist field, that more research needs to be done on this, and that it's again, it seems like what maybe was the biggest accusation you could level at them is sort of this lack of imagination about how to go about studying them if we're going to go about studying them. But nobody has ever inside of the behaviorist field, as far as I could find ever claimed that emotions were unstudiable, unimportant, or irrelevant to the understanding of behavior. Absolutely. I mean, the closest I could think of would be like, if you're looking at the differences between methodological behaviorism versus radical behaviorism, I could see that there's a discrepancy there. But in methodological behaviorism, they're not saying that emotions don't exist. That's just not their unit of analysis. That's not their scope. Like they're not right. accounting for private events and, and counting the the internal environment as an environment worthy of study, or not even necessarily worthy of study, but just not, it's not part of their scope, whereas radical behaviorism does. So if you, if this guy ever even looked at a single bit of radical behaviorism, then I don't know why he would even pull this quote out of his ass um, and just say like, you know, Skinner, Skinner's say, says the emotions are relevant because that's like the, that's like part of the basis of the entire radical behaviorism philosophy. Yeah, it's, it's kind of silly. And you're absolutely right. Like that is one of the, the core parts of, of radical behaviorism is the fact that there are, in the behaviorist movement that emphasized study on objective variables, the radical behaviorist movement was objective, beha- uh, observable behaviors, and th- that the philosophy extends to all things that we do, including those in those things that we cannot directly observe, but we know, th- but we do experience. Exactly. Yeah. So, all right. Franz, come at us, man. <laughs> this is your. <laughs> um, I would I would love for you to hear def- your defend yourself, but like, just straight up, Skinner didn't say that, and I don't really understand your point in trying to claim that he did. Um, it's very possible that like people weren't studying research to your satisfaction, but you just you can't lay that at the feet of behaviorism, as far as we can tell. And moreover, I would love to have a, an actual discussion with you about it because I think it's I think it's worthy of having that discussion and 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 really digging into this together because um, you know I, I I don't know that maybe you've gotten the exposure to behavior behaviorism that you need to understand where we come from from that emotional standpoint. Yeah, yeah, I think um, yeah, you're right. <laughs> I don't I have not, nothing left to add to that. So, but. so here's your invitation, my friend. Yeah. It's like we're really just, yeah, we're really, we're curious and we want to have discussions and we want to learn as much as we can and we want to share as much as we have learned as we can. And this is just, you know, if you're going to go about saying things like that, then be prepared to be challenged by people who apparently know a lot more about this than you do. Yeah. And and very honestly, like I know this, this is coming across as pretty snarky and pretty like, I mean, this is probably like a whole episode dedicated to an emotional response from behaviorists. (laughs) 
<laughs> like it's kind of what this is. If you really think about it, but I mean, very legitimately, we are skeptics. We are behaviorists at heart. That's our bent. That's our bias, and and we can recognize that. But I think it's important to say, like you know, we're willing to hear. Like we do, kind of come from an interdisciplinary perspective. We want to hear those other sides. We want to we want to have those discussions and and really dig into it and see if there isn't some kind of common ground that maybe there's just a misunderstanding more than anything else. Cool. Yeah, completely agree. All right. All right. Well, I think that's it. Yeah. Um, we were snarky and mission accomplished. And hey, if you're interested in supporting the show, please leave us a comment, subscribe to our show, tell a friend. Um, you may support us financially if you'd like to. Join us on Patreon. We have added new levels. You can uh, get access to recordings of our discussions when we record these episodes. You can get access to a live chat with us. You can get access to uncut versions of episodes with all of our mistakes and foibles and brief periods of time where we're reading something and not saying anything at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah, you get to watch us happens. read. It's cool. Yep. Um, and uh, you also get access to our Discord server. We'll be going on there, and I'm just going to I'm gonna be available there. I want to keep it up, so I'll talk to people who want to get on there. And uh, even all the way up to the level of potentially um, suggesting a topic or even participating in an episode if you, if you want to join at that level. And, hey, even if you want to join for just one time to be a part of an episode, you're like, hey, I'm just going to join this level for this one one-time payment and be part of this episode and then drop down to a lower tier or drop off altogether that's fine too like you're welcome to engage with this in any way that you want um, but we're looking forward to being able to gauge people more directly and that's one way you can do it you can also reach out to us on all the social media platforms mm-hmm. uh, we're now on the amazon smart speaker and i think sonos smart speakers and i think google play smart speakers i'm not 100 sure on those uh, we're also on TuneIn, stitcher soundcloud spotify spreaker pod search um where else? Where else do you guys? All Google the Play. Things. All the things. Run all the things. So uh, please feel free to reach out and find us there. And uh, contact us. We're happy to hear from you and we'll definitely respond. Thanks to Michelle Danico for providing research on this episode. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So please, yeah, we love we love the feedback. We love the comments. We love the engagement. And, uh, you know, we're pretty, we try to be pretty humble folks. So just reach out to us and chat. We're, we're real human beings. So it's true. Cool. All right. With that being said, I think we're good to go. This is Abraham. And this is Shane. We're out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at Podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.